0: Today, governments do a good job of cashing in as a result of our bad behavior. Parking and speeding tickets, DUIs, towing fees. There are a myriad of ways that governments get revenue when we don't behave in our cars. In addition, although we want people to take transit in most of our large cities, parking fees from city-owned lots and street parking tend to be a panacea for municipal coffers. New York City makes over half a billion dollars each year on parking ticket revenue. The value of a single surface level parking space in London is £465,000 in some areas of the city. The City of Toronto Parking Authority allocates half of each revenue dollar back to the municipal government as a source of general revenue. Clearly, the funding models that cities are dependent upon to deliver public services and infrastructure needs us to drive. Revenue generated from parking and other car-related services play a key role in keeping municipal governments running. But what if this revenue were to evaporate? No, I'm not imagining a future where we all suddenly get it together. I'm talking about a future much more realistic than that. Is it possible that we're on the cusp of a future where we no longer need to park our cars? Where we no longer need to drive and own cars? Given that in North America, the average household spends $5,235 annually on owning, maintaining, and insuring their cars, the advent of driverless cars might not be so great for revenue streams of municipal governments. But is it possible that it might represent a windfall for those of us that own cars and drive today? I'm Jennifer Kiesmat, and this is Invisible City. This episode will revisit the history of the car and explore the transformative impact of driverless cars on our shared future and On Our Cities. In our United States, about half of the people live in cities and their suburbs. Between these cities has grown a network of transportation arteries to carry men and goods in a steady flow of commerce. By about 1920, a few years following the introduction of the assembly line at Ford Motor Plants in North America, cars began to dominate roads in cities. Governments banned horses to get rid of the manure and stench, and to make more room for cars. Buggies quickly disappeared. It was a new modern age where the independence and convenience offered by cars promised to improve the quality of life for the middle class. But the truth is, narrow road networks almost immediately became clogged with cars that couldn't move much more quickly than the people walking on the sidewalk beside them. Cars, it turned out, took up a lot of space, something that is a premium in any city, and didn't move a lot of people at once. For growing cities or cities wanting to grow, this presented a problem. The only solution, it seemed, was a complete redesign of our cities. Enter the suburbs, facilitated and designed to respond directly to the opportunity presented by the car. It was now possible for people to live outside the city and to commute, either by transit or a car, into work. The transformation of our cities in North America, as well as other parts of the world, was swift as a result of post-World War II building boom. By 1950, more people in Canada and the U.S. lived in bedroom communities than anywhere else. Mass transit and the car had redefined our lifestyles and our dreams. Fast forward to 2016. Has the dream held? (laughs) Well, let's be honest. The dream said nothing of the endless traffic jams that our lives would become in the 21st century. In big and mid-sized cities alike, the hour-long commute, that's two hours a day, sitting in a car or on transit, has become the norm rather than the exception. Dinner with the family? Ha! The long commute took care of that. Time to coach little league or indulge in hobbies? The long commute obliterated that too. We know that congestion is literally costing national economies billions of dollars a year around the world. A recent study conducted in partnership between a London based consultancy called the Center for Economic and Business Research and INRIX, a traffic data firm, calculated that the combined annual cost of gridlock in Britain, France, Germany, and the United States is expected to soar to $293 billion by 2030. Honestly, that's so much money, I think most of us just don't even know how to register an amount like that in our mind's eye. But even worse, over this period, the cumulative cost of congestion for these economies combined is estimated to be $4.4 trillion. To put that number in perspective, the amount of money spent educating school aged children in Finland, which is widely recognized as having one of the best education systems in the Western world, Is $41 billion a year. Just think, we could give everyone in the world a world-class education for the amount of money that we are wasting sitting in traffic. At the micro level, the numbers are staggering too. In the United States, the average cost of congestion to a car-owning household is roughly $1,700 dollars. But in highly congested cities like Los Angeles, each resident can lose up to 6,000 a year idling in their cars. But congestion is more than an economic problem. It's also a social and an environmental problem. Congestion is paralyzing our cities and failing to allow our cities to develop into great places to live. There are, of course, positive benefits of living in cities. The high concentration of people Businesses, ideas, and energy is a source of innovation, connectivity, and culture. When travel times escalate, these interactions become too costly to pursue. And soon, the benefits of living and working in an urban environment begin to decline. In recent years, there has also been seminal scientific research on the relationship between commute times and personal well-being and health. Research overwhelmingly suggests that people who spend the most time on the road experience higher levels of stress because they constantly feel hurried. That's not surprising. Many spend the time on the road worrying about all the valuable activities they are missing, like time spent volunteering at a church or a mosque or making dinner for the family. Decreased time spent with family and friends contributes to higher rates of stress and decreased life satisfaction. Clearly, cars transformed the design of our cities. And traffic congestion changed our everyday lives. Now, my question is this. Given the rapid pace of technological change and the need to rethink urban mobility, Are we on the cusp of a similar, monumental change as was experienced with the introduction of the car? Much of our 20th century city building has been wrapped up in the advent of the personal vehicle. Until the 1950s, public transit was recognized as an important way to travel to and from work. But in the 1950s, our planning broke with that idea and our street network designs in new communities began to shift. New circuitous street patterns emerged, what planners sometimes call loops and lollipops. See, designers of transit suburbs knew that every trip began and ended with a walk. So, neighbourhoods were designed for pedestrians typically on a grid to provide the shortest distance between two points. These suburbs were designed with short blocks and houses with modest front yards and sometimes porches that hugged the edge of the street. But the 1950s marked the wholesale abandonment of transit-oriented suburbs in exchange for housing in neighbourhoods designed on the assumption that everyone would have access to a car. In this new reality, a short, even enjoyable, highway ride would easily transport us to our jobs in the city centre. So what went wrong? As land use planning shifted to separate functions and forms of our lives, the distance between where people worked and where people lived grew farther and farther and farther. Farther apart. As neighborhoods and new forms of housing moved farther away from dense, walkable urban cores, the need for each household to have a car, and in some cases two or three, only increased. While the car was synonymous with personal freedom, the changing nature of the design of cities resulted in an environment that provided people with less choice. But the good news is a new approach is on the horizon. If, and this is a big if, if we are sensitive and thoughtful enough to get it right. As new technologies rapidly evolve and change every aspect of our lives, the future of urban mobility is transforming too. And the autonomous vehicle is perhaps the most exciting opportunity of them all. In fact, I'd like to go so far as to say that driverless vehicles will have as great, if not a greater, impact on our lifestyles than the advent of the car itself. This is the reason why. Autonomous vehicles will fundamentally change car ownership. It's estimated that in a 24-hour period, the average car is idle 23 hours in a day. At the beginning of this episode, I mentioned that the average household spends over $5,000 a year on the car. The average household spends over $5,000 a year to use their car for one hour per day. This is an intolerable level of inefficiency in any system, particularly in a household budget. The Pembina Institute has quantified the extent to which a household could increase their mortgage if they didn't own a car, thereby making the point that household costs decrease significantly when homeowners have choices other than car ownership. For some, the cost-benefit is worth the investment. But for many, if not most of us, this represents a significant percentage of potentially disposable income That's just sitting at the curb, depreciating as we slog it out at work, trying desperately to get ahead. But cars not only gouge our wallets, they have astronomical societal costs from a safety perspective as well. According to the World Health Organization, 3,400 people die on the world's roads every day. Road accidents are the number one cause of death for people under the age of 35. In 2013, there were almost 33,000 deaths caused by fatal car accidents. It's incredulous to think that 100% of these deaths were preventable. So let's talk about the future. Some cities and regions are seeking to halt the social, environmental, and fiscal costs associated with designing housing around cars. Governments play a significant role in determining where housing gets built and what the shape and form of that housing will be by developing land use policies that direct and shape the housing market. Ironically, consumer preference has less to do with what our housing looks like than the policy choices made by provincial, federal and municipal governments. Now, if you're interested in this topic in more detail, there's an excellent book by scholar Jonathan Levine titled Zoned Out that presents a detailed analysis of the way that municipal policy is the key determinant of suburban sprawl, as opposed to the myth, as he outlines, of market demand. Cities and regions that are concerned about a sustainable future are proactively directing growth to infill existing already built up urban areas that can accommodate more density. In my own city, this means parking lots are becoming condos. Big box centers are becoming linear main streets with new mid-rise housing brought up to the edge of the street and heritage warehouses are being integrated into new office towers. Our greenbelt here in Ontario is a good example of a regional policy framework that has shifted land values, making intensification a viable proposition for the development industry, thereby redirecting growth. As these new land use policies kick in and start to transform development patterns, and it doesn't happen overnight, it really takes decades, urban areas will become more densely populated with more mid and high rise buildings with more people living and working closer together than today. In this context, walking and a short bike ride increasingly become real transportation options. Now, I downplayed the importance of consumer preferences earlier, but the truth is we are seeing an important demographic shift in consumer preferences, such as the desire to use public transit over owning a car. Car purchases by people aged 18 to 34 fell almost 30% between 2007 and 2011. And the number of kilometers traveled by youth in a car in the early 2000s fell by 25%. Not surprisingly, in a recent survey by Stanford University, when young people were asked to choose between owning a smartphone or a car, they overwhelmingly said, A car I can live without, but don't you dare touch my smartphone. Younger generations are flocking to denser neighborhoods with amenities in close, convenient locations precisely because they want to walk to work. And denser urban places are necessary to make this a real choice. These young people were raised in suburbs, the first generation to witness firsthand the impact of the long commute on families and everyday life. As a result, they are choosing, choosing something fundamentally different for themselves. This demographic is looking for housing choice, as opposed to neighborhoods defined by street after street after street of large single-family homes. And our transformation of neighborhoods in housing choice is enabling something truly remarkable to happen. It will become conceivable to have a high quality of life in North America without owning a car. You know, on the very day I turned 16, back in the mid-80s, I took my driver's test and got my license. And if I remember correctly, I'm pretty sure 99% of my class in high school did the same thing, even if we didn't have access other than, you know, periodic access maybe to the family car when it wasn't in use. That license was my ticket to freedom. But to be fair, I didn't live in a city where I had a lot of choice. The bus service was infrequent and erratic and really didn't get me to the places that I needed or wanted to go. I lived in a suburban neighborhood. There truly wasn't much worth getting to within walking distance of home. A car was a necessity by design. But these changes to community design and namely the fact that we will and are becoming more urban will also transform our relationship with cars for many of us. We are already seeing these changes take root in our most urban places. More on-demand mobility options like Car2Go or Zipcar or AutoShare supplement walking cycling, and transit as part of a suite of options available for getting around. Technology slash transportation services like Uber and Lyft, once and if we figure out a good regulatory framework for them, will also continue to transform the way people move within and between cities, adding more choice. The door-to-door convenience of having access to a personal car might continue to be the commuting method of choice, for some. But it will no longer be the only choice. Autonomous vehicles present a new frontier of transportation choice for a simple reason. They will allow us to maintain the freedom associated with car ownership without actually having to own a car. Imagine no snow tires to change, no parking to pay, no driveway to shovel in the winter, no filling up the tank. Imagine neighborhoods without the wasted space of driveways and multiple garages. Condo buildings without below-grade parking levels. Just by virtue of removing driveways, garages, and or laneways, housing costs will decrease. More density would be achievable, enhancing the walkability of ground-related neighborhoods. In many suburban office parks, two square feet of parking space is provided for each square foot of cubicle. Imagine the design implications and opportunities to better use existing infrastructure if this parking is no longer required. The design of our streets, our neighbourhoods, even our houses will change if we are smart and strategic in welcoming the possibilities. But remember that car accidents are the leading cause of death for people under the age of 35. There are safety implications of driverless cars too. A study conducted by the Conference Board of Canada looked at the implications of autonomous vehicles in the Canadian context. The study suggested that autonomous vehicles could play a significant role in reducing annual road fatalities by 1600 down from the current 2000 a year. If you want to fully appreciate the impact on human life of driving, spend a little time talking to an emergency room doctor. When flesh meets metal, particularly at high speed, the results are nothing less than tragic. We've been so wed to our personal vehicles as a fundamental part of community design that we tend to avoid discussing and recognizing the enormous safety impacts. By removing drivers from behind the wheel, autonomous vehicles are expected to eliminate most of the 93% of the collisions that currently involve human error. And there is already evidence that this is true. Google's prototype of a self-driving car has already driven 1.5 million miles across Mountain View, California, and Austin, Texas. In the six years the project has been running, Google's car has been involved in a small number of accidents. However, the vehicles have not caused any accidents while in self-driving mode. All accidents have been caused by human error. Of other drivers furthermore the conference board of canada estimates the economic benefit may be over 65 billion a year including collision avoidance fuel cost savings and congestion avoidance these are broader societal benefits it doesn't take much to figure out how much you as an individual might also save Autonomous vehicles present some interesting new scenarios for our cities. Many speculate that autonomous vehicles will impact land values. Others argue that autonomous vehicles will increase sprawl or, to the contrary, will facilitate intensification. How is this possible? On the one hand, some argue that we will tolerate longer commutes if we are able to be productive in the vehicle or can spend this time with family and friends. According to this thinking, we can buy cheaper housing farther from the core as a result of a longer commute. In many of Google's promotional videos for their self-driving car, they have images of a mother and daughter spending time reading a children's book together in the car. This is an effective marketing campaign that could accelerate market demand to outlying suburban areas. If people and municipal policymakers who decide what will get built where fall for it but I don't buy it a long commute is a long commute enough places around the world including in the greater Toronto region bought into this idea a generation ago that is that a highly subsidized regional transit system was the solution but the everyday experiences of commuters squash this myth sure you can work on the train but you are still captive to a long commute Even if you are working in your car instead of driving it, you are still captive to that commute, sitting, trapped, inactive. This simply cannot compare to the ideal, which is a short, pleasant walk to work. We must not lose sight of the fact that our quality of life in our neighborhoods is about more than our commute. Having the option to walk out to dinner or a movie or to the doctor or dentist is all contingent on getting density right, hitting that critical mass sweet spot. So maybe you can hop into an autonomous vehicle to commute to work. And by the way, if everyone is doing the same, there is evidence that traffic congestion will remain the same. But you are still stuck in your neighborhood where the activities of everyday life must be undertaken by driving. Autonomous vehicles will make the option of living in suburban neighborhoods less costly, I believe. But the vehicles themselves will not overcome the constraints of a car-oriented community design. So embracing autonomous vehicles while assuming the same land-use planning assumptions of the 50s and 60s won't get us much farther ahead. In Manhattan, a third of trips are made in a car, a third are made on transit, and a third are made on foot or on a bike. The extent to which autonomous vehicles will increase choice, allowing all residents to take a multimodal approach to their city, walking, driving, cycling, taking transit as the situation allows, will transform our cities our most urban places on the globe like manhattan like downtown toronto are already places where a myriad of choices dominate urban mobility it's interesting for me because i stumbled upon this realization several years ago the importance of choice and promptly sold my mini sport coupe which i realized was collecting dust in the driveway I live about a five-minute walk from a subway stop and three minutes in the other direction to a high-frequency bus. I mostly take transit to work since it's the quickest. But when I moved to the neighborhood I live in now about ten years ago, I also changed my doctor and dentist, who are both now a five-minute walk from my home. When I go on a date with my husband, either to a restaurant or to the movies, nine times out of ten, we walk somewhere local. But sometimes I need to travel to our suburban district offices, and then I drive. The point is, having lots of movement choices presents the opportunity to increase quality of life, reduce costs, and minimize our environmental footprint. The alternative argument is that autonomous vehicles will encourage added density due to less of a need for parking in urban areas. Surface level parking lots will be redeveloped into new housing, increasing the amount of density and availability of housing stock. This to me is a transformative implication of autonomous vehicles. If we eliminate the need for parking, both in the core and in our neighborhoods, We free up land, so to speak, and provide opportunities for redevelopment, density, and intensification. In terms of our land use, imagine your neighborhood with no driveways, no street-side parking. Imagine surface parking areas becoming parks. We can design to densities that increase the walkability of our neighborhoods and decrease the amount of road needed on a per capita basis to service communities the land use planning implications are paralleled in their significance to the public transit implications. Autonomous vehicles in a variety of forms, in a variety of different types of vehicles, could become a de facto form of urban public transit, enhancing existing overburdened systems, or on the other end of the spectrum, supplementing gaps in service. Already early prototypes of this idea are available to us, technologies and services that allow for ride-sharing at split costs with people who are requesting a ride along a similar route. Of course, we need to get the pricing right to make this a viable choice within a larger mix of mobility options. We know that increasing road capacity due to induced demand doesn't solve traffic congestion. Building more roads has simply served to compromise the character of our cities and facilitate the myth that we can live very far from where we work and continue to have a high quality of life. We also know that in most cities, during rush hour, most cars are occupied by only one person, the driver. There is significant unused capacity in every vehicle on the road today. Imagine if... As a result of driverless vehicles, every seat in every vehicle was filled. But let's take that idea one step further. Imagine how vehicles of various sizes can respond to demand and act as a transit service, particularly in mid-sized cities that do not yet have the densities to support rapid transit. If the goal is to increase choice in an affordable manner investing in major transit infrastructure isn't always the best answer. Just ask cities like Curitiba, Brazil that have transformed movement by embracing a rapid bus network. Now imagine that rapid bus network becoming more nuanced and able to respond to needs in lower density areas. Autonomous vehicles will allow for a further iteration of this technology, extending the benefits of consumer-oriented apps to a broader public if used as part of the public transit system. Currently, in many transit systems, the short trip overpays while the longer trip is highly subsidized by the public purse. It's entirely possible autonomous vehicles that allow for ride-sharing and price-by-distance will act as an incentive for the public sector to embrace fare-by-distance technology. Importantly, autonomous vehicles could improve the last-mile problem as well, connecting people from home to transit stations and vice versa in areas that suffer from poor design or low densities, meaning that it's tricky to get close to home on transit with high frequency and prepayment autonomous vehicles could reduce the number of people traveling in cars and free up capacity on public transit automatic train control is a technology already available to us that transforms the capacity of existing transit infrastructure by allowing subway trains to run closer together given that human error is no longer a risk. Here in Toronto, the overburdened Young Line will experience a bump in capacity of 25% once automatic train control is unrolled in several years. We know that accessible, reliable public transit is also a lever of upward mobility, enabling newcomers to access jobs and education. And yet, the communities that need access to public transit the most often have the least access. Increasingly, as public transit becomes a middle-class amenity of the educated and upwardly mobile, housing prices are highest in the best public transit hubs. Inevitably, and this is a pattern seen from London to New York to Toronto, those least able to pay are pushed into the areas of the city with the lowest levels of transit service. Policymakers and decision makers must reimagine how public services like public transit will be delivered in the future. We know, for example, as the world welcomes Syrian refugees into cities across the globe, that the integration of newcomers will be facilitated by access to work, education, libraries, and other social supports. Positioning autonomous vehicles as part of a network of solutions to enhance access and livability is one of the greatest opportunities of our time. Clearly, autonomous vehicles will only enhance our cities if they are accompanied by great public policy that ensures they complement the advancement of dense walkable communities. When we get this right, We'll limit the need for car ownership and long commutes, and our cities will be characterized by more mobility choice. Autonomous vehicles will have a role to play as just one of our choices. But we shouldn't fool ourselves. Great land use planning must come first. The design of our cities must always put people first autonomous vehicles are not a panacea unto themselves they are a tool that holds a myriad of possibilities and how we continue to design our cities in light of them will determine whether they are an asset or a burden and don't be fooled they could be both cities were redesigned to accommodate cars in the 20th century this was an intentional, conscious choice. Little did leaders know at the time that traffic collisions would become killers, that sedentary diseases would shorten our lifespans, and that GHG emissions would irreparably alter our climate, inspiring the need for a global response. Leaders of the time didn't know, but we know all of this today and it brings into focus the need to reaffirm our commitment to safe, sustainable, livable cities as we embrace once again monumental change. I am Jennifer Kiesmat and this is Invisible City. This episode was brought to you by TD Bank and Evergreen City Works. Invisible City is a product of Freeman House, a creative agency based in my beautiful city, Toronto. Each episode of Invisible City features an original score by Freeman House. This episode was written by me, Jennifer Kiesmat, and Jesse Darling. It was produced by Ryan Freeman. I hope you enjoyed this podcast as much as we enjoyed creating it. Ryan and I are aiming to release an episode on the first of each month. So, you know, subscribe so that you don't miss out. All of our episodes are on our website, invisiblecitypodcast.com.